it's very clear as we read Scripture and we read the stories in Scripture that the written word has been significant to our people throughout our history. When we go all the way back and we trace our spiritual heritage to the time of Moses and the law into the Old Testament, we see that that which was written and disseminated as the word of God held a special place. And the journey that that has been on to get to us is, is really remarkable. Uh, I'm teaching a, a history of the Bible right now for our high school class, and I did that as an adult class last summer, uh, and that's available online if anyone wants to go back and revisit it on our website. Um, it's like a 16-part uh, history. It, it is more like a history class than a Bible class on how we got our Bible. And I won't get into all that this morning, but just suffice to say it's a fascinating journey. But one thing it does is highlights, when we understand that history, it highlights how important the written scriptures have always been. There was a time in the relationship between God and his people where there was no written word, written scripture. God dealt directly with people and spoke to them. And there was a time where he continued to speak to his people through prophets and through signs and through wonders. And it wasn't really until quite a bit later in the history of the Jewish people that they had a lot of these things written down in the form that we have them. But as soon as they were, they were always special. And prior to that, the oral history and tradition that was passed down through the Jewish people was also significant and important. And it's why the, the writer of Proverbs says in chapter 7, verse 2 and following, keep my commandments and live, and my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. The teachings of God, the wisdom, the instruction, the ordinance that was given from God to man to be written down and preserved was always an important part of who we are. And it continues to be. In the history of, of the modern church, and particularly the churches of Christ, we have stood out as people who value very much Scripture. The significance of the Word, as we call it, or the significance of Scripture, is very evident in the history of God's people. There were times because of the, well, because of the ease of deterioration of the written Word long ago, they would copy and copy and copy and try to preserve. And sometimes, because of their traveling, because of their captivity, because of their oppression, those things were lost. And when they were rediscovered, they were upheld as a, a wonderful, wonderful reclamation of the law. It was important to the people for preserving their culture and preserving their spiritual connection to God. As the, the New Testament church was established and grew, we see in Acts chapter 2, that some of the most important things that they did together, and they were spending time together, one of the things listed there is that they read Scripture together. And when they met together, they read Scripture and they looked at the words. Now, their Scripture looked very different than ours. They didn't have nice leather-bound copies with a marker and, and footnotes and all that. They didn't have any of that. But they did have the writings of what we call the Old Testament and eventually the writings of the New Testament. And while those weren't gathered in a collection like we had, they definitely considered some of them to be scripture and to be inspired and holy. Paul writes to Timothy and tells him that all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuke, and encouraging in all righteousness. So we see even in the first century, and in the centuries that followed, they were faced with the question about what is considered scripture and what was important to them. 
That issue was kind of forced by the rise of, of institutional churches, the Catholic Church and, and, and the Roman government, because it forced them to decide what they were willing to die for. And the letters of Paul and of James and Peter and the writings of John and the Gospels, they clearly were willing to sacrifice their lives for, and many did, because the written word has been important in our history. It has been significant in our development and continues to be. Every movement that has sought to restore or reform the church at large, whether it be Protestant Reformation or the American Restoration Movement, any of these sort of um, back-to-the-Bible movements have been just that, an effort to get us back to the Bible, because this is the thing that it's hoped we can all agree on. Alexander Campbell, uh, one of the, the forefathers of, of our, the Church of Christ tradition, talked about speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent, and about the importance of the Word, and that has always been a hallmark of the the Restoration History, Restoration Heritage Churches. And I'm thankful for that. And this morning I want to talk a little bit about the importance of the Word and its place in our life and in our spiritual development. Because it can be quite controversial sometimes. Unfortunately so. When we look at the different schools of thought on how we handle Scripture. Scripture can be a very, very, I don't want to say dangerous thing, but it can be something that is, can make people move. It can move things. There's a, there's a disruption when it comes to Scripture. And we know that because Paul also wrote that the Word of God is living and active and it is sharper than any double-edged sword. That it pierces to the division of joint and marrow and of soul and spirit. Now, that's a really interesting way of describing that. Of course, when Paul wrote those words, they didn't know a whole lot about biology and bones and marrow and joints, but they knew enough to say that it's really hard to divide those things. It's really hard to know where soul and spirit connect and what the difference is. And yet the word of God is penetrating. The scripture moves us. It pierces us. It divides. It, it, it disrupts. And we have to know how to handle it properly. A couple of different schools of thought have developed over the centuries about what the Bible is and how we are to use it. So there's one school of thought, just, and we're speaking in generalities here, that says, well, the Bible is an instructional manual. It's a rule book. It tells you what to do and what not to do to please God, how to live and how not to live. Now, there are some good things about that point of view, and there are some negative things about that point of view, and we have to be honest about that. Because while we seek clarity in how to live, and we definitely like, I mean, humanity loves lines, we like boundaries. We like to know what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. We want it to be clear. And so there's a natural tendency to want to look at Scripture and try to find where's the rule here? What are we supposed to do? And I think we all have experienced instances where that has been taken to an extreme. Uh, we have seen wonderful movements within the history of God's people that have sought to restore some, something that looks a little more like what God had in mind for his people, and yet even those movements that are designed to unify end up dividing and fracturing and splintering. Within the churches of Christ, we see this. Whether it be geographically or doctrinally, we see differences developing in our, in our churches. And a lot of it has to do with how we interpret Scripture and that we're looking for a rule. We're looking for a line. We're looking for 
an ordinance or an instruction to know exactly what to do. And when we take that to the extreme, we probably do more damage than we do good. Because the hope and the dream of people like Thomas and Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone to unify Christians around the word and around the practice of Christianity ended up dividing multiple times. We know about the, there are churches that worship with instruments and there are churches that don't. And there are churches in, in which uh, women have a, 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 their voices is held up and utilized and others where it's not. And all, all those people feel that they're justified by the word in what they do. There's uh, one great example that I love to cite. Um, we, we refer to them as anti or anti-institutional churches. But one of the things about these churches where they, they absolve themselves of all association with other churches of Christ is they use one cup for communion. Uh, boy, a pandemic will get you to re-examine scripture real quick, I think. When you're, and you want to know, when you go into a one-cup church, you just want to know where it starts. That's, I, as long as I know which side of the room it starts on, then I can find a seat. Uh, but even amongst the churches that divided, that left over the one cup issue versus multiple cups, did you know there was a division later on amongst those churches over whether or not it was permissible for the cup to have a handle or no handle? They really did. We can take this rule book attitude about Scripture to an extreme that is detrimental to our unity and to our growth, and even detrimental to our focus. Paul deals with that quite a bit as he tries to instruct the early church into not imposing certain matters of conscience on one another. There is a degree to which we have to let go of the idea that following some instruction that we've drawn out of Scripture is somehow going to be more pleasing to God than someone across town that does it differently. There are instructions in Scripture. There are ordinances. There are calls for ways to live and even how to worship. But we have to be careful that we're not drawing lines where God does not draw lines. One great example of this um, is in, in, in the region of islands in uh, Papua New Guinea. Now, Papua New Guinea was uh, a place that was home. It was a very um, primitive culture existed there natively home to um, this primitive culture and these tribes that were then contacted by the civilized world during World War II, where allied forces would use that island and that, that area as a base. And when they came in to have peace with the native culture around them, they brought gifts and benevolent things to feed and to clothe and to provide for these people. And ever since they left, leaving this culture now into, in their primitive state, there have been cults that have organized around the idea of bringing those blessings back. Now, that's hard for us to really understand, but see, when planes land in a place where they have no concept of airplanes, what else are you left to conclude except there is a god or a power somewhere bringing this stuff to us? And you can go to these places and watch these. They're called cargo cults because they're... They're designed around the idea that if we can somehow replicate the situation that existed when those blessings came to us, we'll get them to come back. And you will see people who they build makeshift desks out of the materials around them, and they build telephones, fake telephones and pencils and paper. And they'll sit there and pick it up and put it down and move this here, move this there, because they've been told that they watched these generals and these commanders sit at desks, pick up phones, 
order supplies, and that they would be flown in. These cults, there's, there's one called the John Frum cult, which people think, is, is, anthropologists believe, is probably because someone met a soldier and he introduced himself as John from somewhere. So the John Frum cult, they set up their desk and they believe that if they do things just exactly the way they saw it before, the same blessing will result. Even Alexander Campbell believed that if we could achieve universality in our worship practice, that it would hasten the return of Jesus. That we can do just the right things in just the right way to please God and bring Jesus back. I don't know if that's a view that is backed up by Scripture. But there is a dangerous extreme to which we can sometimes have the same mentality as the cargo cults. That if we will do things the way we've seen them done and get it just right, that there will be greater blessings. And we have to understand that for all of the instruction, all of the ordinance, and all of the example that we find in Scripture, we also must understand that God is sovereign. He works in his own way in his own time. And he wants his children to gather and to worship him. The other side of this way we look at Scripture has to do with the idea of a narrative, that the Bible is really a story. It's a story about God, and it's a story about his people, and there's not a whole lot in there about rules. He just wants us to know the story. And I can certainly understand that point of view. It has an extreme component as well, because there is a side we can go where we completely lose touch with everything that is concrete about Scripture. You can move far enough in that direction that you lose touch with really the sanctity of Scripture and what it teaches. And so we don't want to lose touch with those concrete foundational things, and yet we do want to acknowledge there is a narrative to the Bible. To forget that when John describes Jesus in John chapter 1, he uses the term word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When we talk about the Word of God, we're referring to 66 books in a collection. But when the Bible talks about the Word of God, it very often is referring to Jesus, the Son of God. So what are we to make of that relationship? We make this the central focus of everything we do, and in some cases, rightly so. It is God's revelation to man. It is a collection of instruction and story to help us understand who God is, who his son is, and what he means to us. And yet, it calls us to make Jesus the center of all we do. I don't know to what degree the Bible is an instruction manual, and I don't know to what degree it is a story. There are probably shades of both. But I do know this. There have been times in history where God's people did not have the 66 books in a collection that we have. How were they saved? The word that, or the, the, excuse me, the scripture that Travis read said that faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when we read that verse, we think faith comes by hearing and the way you hear it is to read this book. And that would be true. But only so much as this book reveals to us the true word of God and that is Jesus Christ. In the early church, they didn't have this. They had their collection of what they considered scripture. They passed it around. They disseminated it. They copied it. They read it. They studied it. And like 
was written in Proverbs. They wrote it on their heart. There were times where parts of the world were completely unable to access Scripture. Scripture was locked down by the Roman Catholic Church, by their Latin Vulgate translation. It wasn't allowed to be possessed by common people. It was barely allowed to be possessed by the priests. Only certain people could teach it. And it was thousands of years before we got it into another common language, long after Latin was out of fashion. How did those people who did not possess Scripture, how were they saved? The one thing that I think we don't admit, but that is true, is how we look at the Bible. We look at the Bible as if we were just walking down the road one day, the skies opened up, and a leather-bound King James Bible came down and rested at our feet. We think of it that way. Because it's all we've ever known. But there are plenty of examples of times in history where that didn't exist. It was a little more ambiguous. How did God's people figure it out? Because God has always led his people by the light. And they were led by the light that they had. And sometimes it was an incomplete picture compared to what we have. And sometimes it was in a different language. And sometimes it wasn't everything that we understand and know. But God still had his people, and they still cherished his word, not just the written, but the true word, Jesus Christ. I think it's time that as, as a church, we look at scripture in a more holistic way. As not the central focus of what we do, but the central means of understanding Jesus and understanding God and his son. And his relationship to us through him. It definitely has rules, but it is not a rule book. And it definitely has a narrative arc, but it is not simply stories. It's something else altogether. The Bible is for us a roadmap. It is a directional ordinance to help us see and get to where Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And some men inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote down the things that would get God's people to where Jesus was. Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, as he gives what we call the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given unto me. All authority has been given to Jesus. He didn't say all authority has been given to me and some words that some people will write in the next hundred years after me. Because that didn't exist yet. Conceptually, that wasn't there. God has always provided his people with a light, with a direction, with a map to get to where he is. And all of those roads lead through Christ. The word of God. What do you think of when you hear that phrase? I want to encourage you to not think so much about the written 66 books that we hold in our hand. And I am not trying to deconstruct or diminish the importance of this. Please don't misunderstand that. But I want you, when you hear the phrase, the word of God, to begin thinking first and foremost about Jesus because he is God's revelation to mankind. He is God's message. He is the gospel. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the word. What we call the word, the written documents that we base our spiritual life upon, that points the direction to Jesus. 
That sets our sights on Christ. It directs us in paths of righteousness toward Him. With instruction, with narrative, and with a constant beacon shined on the Son of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus exists throughout Scripture. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament point the direction to a Savior who is coming or has come or will come again. And we are so blessed. I mean, think about this. Think about the span of history. Think about the time. And think about how much of that time God's people have had such an easily accessible way to understand him. I mean, used to, I would, you know, if I would preach, I'd call out a scripture and everybody would, you'd hear the rustling of the pages. I really miss that. That's one of those, that's one of those sounds that is, has long since died. Kind of like the sound of uh, dial-up internet. Do you guys remember dial-up internet? And the sound like a submarine was getting ready to dive. You don't hear that anymore because it's on our phones now. I can pull out my phone and I can access 16, 17 different translations of the Bible in different languages. We have so much access, so much information. It's amazing. We live in a world where it's legal, where it's, it's very, uh, very, not only legal, but also very easy to access Scripture. And how much of the history of the world has that really been possible? Not much. A few hundred years? Maybe? It's really pretty remarkable. And we are so blessed. And that means we have a responsibility to use this blessing wisely, to understand its role in our life. Scripture is powerful and descriptive, and we must wield it responsibly. Not to ignore and lose the blessing of this written word and not to use as a weapon against others, but to rightly understand that we hold in our hand the result of thousands of years of work, thousands of lives lost in the effort to get it to us, and a remarkable revelation that points a direction. And that direction is toward Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not just the written word, but Jesus himself. And how do we hear what Jesus is telling us? Through this written document. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What a powerful, powerful responsibility we have. I, I encourage daily Bible reading. I think a lot of people do. It it's important. I struggle with it. Because sometimes it's part of the job, you know. I find myself reading my Bible because I'm preparing for something. And I'm trying to do a better job of just reading for myself. Taking time to just read for myself. And not making it just another checklist item to mark off for the day. But actually read the Bible. You might be surprised at some of the things it says. You really might. I hope that as Christians, and I hope that the church at large will become a people who rededicate themselves to the reading, preaching, and understanding of Scripture. But in doing so, we must wield that responsibly. Not a rule book, and not simply a narrative story with no guardrails, but something different altogether. Signposts that point us down the road of life in the direction of Jesus. To be more like Him 
Will we have a Bible in heaven? You ever thought about that? You ever asked yourself that question? When we get to heaven, are we going to have Bibles? I imagine, I don't know what my mansion is going to look like when I get there, but I'll bet the Gideons have already got one in the drawer when I get there. I just imagine they're probably already working on that. Will we? Will we need it? No. There will come a time where this outlives its usefulness. That's a scary thing to think about because this is what we hold on to. This is what we have. We want to get this into the hands of people. But this only serves us for a time. Like the, like the law that Moses brought down from the mountain, like the, the words of the prophets, this is here for a while to get us down that road. But it is not eternal. Jesus is. And where he is taking us is. Use it as it is intended while we have it. Because one day it might look different. Because the world will look different. And that's okay. We're all walking down a road toward Jesus. If you are on that journey and you would like prayer and encouragement on that journey, if you would like to rededicate yourself to God, to his son, or if you would like to enter into a, a sanctified relationship through his son for the first time, we want to offer you an opportunity now to make that need known that we can help you with it as we stand and while Jonathan leads us in song.